I have always been a work-to-live person, not a live-to-work person. And that's something that I don't think you really have the ability to anticipate when you're in college, right? Like, you know, you would sort of assume that a big part of your life would be your career and that that would be a driving motivation. The things that get me out of bed in the morning have very seldom been the things that I just paid to do. With an inclination toward making things, Ben Mitchell was drawn to an engineering path until differential equations came along. The promise of being able to get his hands dirty with tools right away made the computer science major more appealing. The burgeoning tech world seemed the natural fit after graduation. Luckily, the ebbs and flows of that industry gave him the opportunities to get his hands dirty by other means. Find out how keeping the maker spirit alive outside the day job can sustain you in important ways on today's Roads Taken with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley. Today I'm here with my friend Ben Mitchell and we are going to talk about roads that lead away from home, roads that lead back to home and all the in-betweens. So Ben, thanks so much for being here. It's a pleasure to join you. So I start these conversations the same way with all of my guests, asking two questions, and they are these. When we were in college, who were you? And when we were getting ready to leave, who did you think you would become? Hmm. When I was in, when we were in college, who was I? Um, to me, you were Beniamino because we went to Italy well, together. But I think there are other parts of you. You know, I, there's the whole Myers-Briggs introvert, extrovert thing, and then there are true introverts versus extroverts. And I think in college, I was an introverted introvert. Um, <laughs> I did not, right? I, I had people that I hung out with. I was on the sailing team. I was a Zate. If you were in either of those groups, I knew you very well. If you were on our Italian LSA for at least that brief period, I knew you very well. But I was not someone that, and honestly, still I'm not someone that has large numbers of shallow relationships. I have small numbers of deep ones. And so people, you know, play the name game when they're like, oh, you were in Dartmouth and you were there, you know, in the mid 90s. Did you know so and so? And my answer before they even put that name out is always no. Right. Like, because the odds of the, that being one of the 10 people that I actually am going to be able to respond yes to is um, very, very small. But I, I do think I kind of knew who I was. Right. I just didn't know how it would manifest itself. I've um, I feel like I've been a pretty consistent person for most of my life. It, and it just takes on different shapes as it goes. So who did I think I was going to be? That was your question, not what did I think I was going to do? Is that right. right? Who did you think yeah. you would become? So who did I think I was going to be? I, that would have been, well, so I got my degree in computer science. You know, this was in the days of the, you know, beginning of the WWW, right? And mm-hmm. so, you know, I figured I was going to go out to Silicon Valley and, you know, make the real money. In fact, I had a friend at Dartmouth who will remain nameless who tried to convince me to join a, a hedge fund. I was like, no, 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 I'm going out to California where the real money is, right? <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I anticipated that that would be the direction that I would go. And, you know, I wrote software for six or seven years, uh, five or six years before going back and getting an MBA. And, you know, learned the hard lesson that uh, for every highly successful startup, there are dozens and dozens that are not, right? But that uh, that was what I sort of envisioned, and it's where I landed. I think the thing that I wouldn't necessarily have been able to appreciate at the time 
is that I have always been a work to live person, not a live to work person. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I don't think you really have the ability to anticipate when you're in college, right? Like, you know, you would sort of assume that a big part of your life would be your career and that that would be a driving motivation and whatnot. Uh, you know, I don't know whether it's because I never landed in a place where it felt all consuming or if it's just that that's how I'm wired. The things that get me out of bed in the morning have very seldom been the things that I was paid to do. Mm. Okay. And was that at Dartmouth as well? Well, you're not paid to do anything. I know. But I mean, you think there's a payoff at the end, right? So, like... uh, Well, yeah. I mean, so I... Like, were you going to school in order to be in college or were you in college to go to school? Would be a correlate to that. I mean, I, I think I was going to school to be in college, right? Like, you know, I think that... Um, in, in our era, you know, the conventional wisdom was correct that, like, there was no path that didn't involve going through college, right? And I think that that's starting to change today. And one of the, one of the things that it is useful to contemplate in this era is, like, am I academically motivated? Am I interested in what I'm going to get out of this? You know, is it like, am I going for the learning, right? Uh, you know, I think, you know, you sort of go to middle school, then you go to high school, then you go to college. And I was a good student. So I went to Dartmouth because like it looked like a really fun place to go to college. Right. But I wasn't there because I had a burning interest in computer science. And Dartmouth was the place to get that material. Right. I was there because it was a beautiful campus with lots of good sort of outdoor stuff to do. And, you know, uh, uh, what was to me an appealing social environment. And I'll figure out what I'm going to do when I get there. When I came to Dartmouth, I assumed I'd probably be a Mackie. And I'm a good logic person. I'm not awesome at higher math, right? And so, like, all of the math prereqs to engineering sort of bogged me down. And the computer science people were like, build a calendar app or application <laughs> in that era, right? Like, right. build a thing to do this. And you just got to go build stuff without, like, all of these, like, well, before we actually let you touch the tools, you're going to have to have seven years of math, right? And um, right. so that led me down this path towards computer science because like I like making things right and I mean you your 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 listeners can't see this but I'm sitting in my shop which is bigger than yeah. my house right like a mad scientist um, workshop back there yeah and and that's you know like I have no regrets about the path that I took but it is interesting to look back and see you know like what it was that triggered this departure from a path that might have made more sense for me right in time but I've I've as we'll probably get to I've found ways to sort of come back to that over the years um, yeah yeah. Okay. So yeah. let's do that. So as you were leaving college with a computer science degree at the beginning of the WWW period, mm -hmm. you did head west, young man, back to where home was, right? Palo Alto. Yep. And Fifth generation Palo Alto. Wow. Wow. That's as far back as they go, I think. Uh huh. My great grandma, it's actually funny. So on both sides of my family, we go back like 150 years in California or more. And so people are like, where are you from? California. No, really, where are you from? <laughs> no, really, California. Right. <laughs> like, I don't know where else I would say. Yeah, so what was that first bit of the trajectory? So I'd interned with a company called Data Tools that was building backup and recovery utilities for database systems like Oracle or Sybase. Or, you know, I mean, this was a very different era when, you know, like backup and recovery was actually not something that the database vendors 
thought was a feature that mattered. And so there was a whole market to build tools to do this. And so, you know, I went and took a job as a junior engineer at a, at a startup, but a, a reasonably established one writing tools to do this stuff. You know, it was interesting. I was by at least 10 years, the youngest person on the engineering team there, which is a double-edged sword, right? Socially, it was terrible, right? You know, I was in Palo Alto, not San Francisco, you know, it, so it was sort of isolating. And that's one of the reasons that I ended up going back to business school in time. But, you know, I really had an opportunity to learn from people who knew what they were doing and we weren't just figuring it out as we went. And that was, you know, the upside. Anyway, I did that until that company was acquired by a large Texas company that was in the, you know, sort of mainframe industry. And they proceeded to ruin the culture, which is a common thing when small tech companies are acquired by large tech companies. And so uh, I left data tools and I think I went straight from there to a company that was sort of co-founded by the guy that had founded data tools. And so I spent a couple of years there and then that the, the handwriting was on the wall for this. This was in the like, you know, in, in the collapse of whatever it was, oh, you know, the late, yeah. late 90s. Yeah. And that company was was tanking. And what I realized was that I didn't want to write software forever. Right. Like that was how I got there. But one of the things that was interesting about both of those companies was that they were very engineering led, but they were also very flat. And so there was no vision for what a career trajectory in engineering would look like other than writing code, mm -hmm. right? And I just, I didn't want to sit at a terminal cranking out C++ for the next 30 years, right? And when you knew how to write software in that era, it was very hard to get hired by a company to do anything else because software engineers were so, you know, scarce. Yeah. Obviously a very different era. And so I viewed going back to business school as a way to like create a sharp break. Right. And so you didn't go far though. No, <laughs> I actually, I, um, so, so this is an, a somewhat embarrassing admission, but, um, I have applied formally to two institutions of higher education. I applied to Dartmouth early decision and got in, and I applied to Stanford Business School and got in. I didn't want to leave the Bay Area because a big part of what I was doing was trying to rebuild a social network, right? Because, you know, to the extent that I had a, a group of Dartmouth friends, they were all on the East Coast and I was living in a pretty small world. And so I figured, you know, like, let's burn the ships and just send out one application and put a lot of focus on it. And it worked. I would not advocate this path for anyone, <laughs> but it worked. No, but it worked in a number of ways. Not only did the application work to get you in, it did both give you that different break or, you know, kind of a new lens mm -hmm. and built a different social situation for yourself because those yeah. ten those people tended to stay. Yeah. Yeah. So talk to me about how a coder goes into business school and comes out a coder plus something. Right. Well, so I'll start with an amusing anecdote, which is that they tend to accept a lot of people with widely divergent backgrounds. The term of art for it is they bring in a lot of poets, right? People who don't have the this sort of... And so they have this thing called math camp that they send people to to try and get up to speed on some of this. They actually sent me to math camp, which was rather hysterical. And everybody in math camp was like, like, what are you doing here? Right? Like, 
I couldn't figure out what I was doing there. But as I said, I had some challenges with higher math at Dartmouth. And so the fact that I had a C in differential equations apparently made it look like <laughs> I didn't know anything about math when, I'm when like, no one yeah, else had taken differential equations. Who else took differential <laughs> equations, right? Like, anyway, so I, was, I, I got off to a great start with math camp. So, you know, I, your question was, uh, how, what does that add? How do you get to something plus? You know, I didn't have any designs on getting out of the technology industry as a result of going to business school. What I wanted to do was open up new roles. And, you know, it is a very uh, well-worn path, although perhaps less so then, but it's in retrospect very, uh, you know, an obvious one to have a strong technical background, go learn something about business management, and then come back into technology on the product management side. And so that's what I decided would be the, the most likely path. I was open to other things, but that worked out. I actually, I went, <laughs> they have career fairs at these places, right? And so I went to a career fair during the second year and there was a, a table set up with like a little PayPal banner on the front of it. And there's this like sort of wild eyed look looking woman with, you know, like curly red hair. She's like, would you be interested in joining PayPal? And I said, I don't know, tell me more. And she's like, well, here's a list of all the product roles that we have. And I said, oh, great. Like, who do I contact later with like, you know, she said, no, no, no I want to know now. <laughs> I'm like, well, fraud prevention looks at, I mean, there's this whole list of areas that they're working on. This, this is after they'd been public and after they'd been acquired by, by eBay. So this is not, I have a great aptitude for joining companies right after their liquidity event. But um, Got it. she, uh, she was like, what do you want to do? And I said, well, fraud looks interesting. She said, why fraud? And I said, well, it seems like a fun game. You're like, you know, fighting against the Russian mafia and stuff. And it's like, a, a, you know, a, a little war. And she's like, Cat and mouse. She's like, yes, you're exactly right. I lead the fraud product management group. And so I ended up working for her. <laughs> and so that was an amazing run. It was after a lot of the, you know, sort of leadership changes. So, you know, Peter Thiel and Elon Musk and all, well, he, he had actually left a lot earlier, but none of these people was there anymore. But the they had built what remains like one of the strongest teams ever assembled in Silicon Valley. I mean, there's, you know, this adage about the PayPal mafia. It remains close to this day. I mean, I go to probably every six months, we'll have, you know, sort of a mini reunion that no more than a year where, where people, some fly in, a lot of us are still local and we get together and hang out and catch up and see what people are doing. And the, the things that that group has gone on to do, you know, some of them are well known, a lot of them are not, but it's, it's a really, really impressive group. And that's, you know, I learned... That's where you sort of apprentice as a product manager, right? And that was a, uh, a great place to do it. Of all the disciplines you might choose, it is the one with the most varied definition from company to company because it's kind of a white space role. So there's a core piece of it, but then you sort of flex into wherever the gaps are in the company. So there are a lot of different flavors of this discipline. And so, you know, I learned the core of the job there and also a lot of pieces that in retrospect, I think don't need to live in product, but it was a good way of fostering that understanding for what other disciplines would do, right? In particular design, mm -hmm. right? Like we would write specs at the level of like, there will be a button, it will be blue, it will say, okay. It will be in the bottom right-hand corner of the page. When clicked, the following 17 things will be recorded in the database, right? So it was a very detail-oriented yeah. version of product management. I don't love that model, but knowing all of those things, was subsequently very useful in other contexts. Right, because you could translate that for the teams that would do that work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, 
Yeah. So we don't have to go place by place because I know no. you were dabbling and had like lots of different experiences. Oh. Probably About every not, two years. Yeah. <laughs> not just because you wanted that, but probably because of the market and what things happen in Silicon Valley, <laughs> as we know. But more recently, you've had some spins that we might you know, yeah. find interesting. So tell us sure. about those. So I, um, I found myself working at a company that I never should have been working at and should have quit early, but it was a video gaming company building basically a casino around a car racing game. And I <laughs> okay. won't bore you with all the reasons that this was a terrible idea and a terrible place to be and terrible execution and all kinds of other stuff. But that company crashed and burned both literally and figuratively the CEO had lined up an investment from a, we were, we were sucking wind. We were down to no money. And he had, he had, he was really good at selling people on an idea that shouldn't have been sold. And so he had managed to line up a, a, an investment from a Swiss private equity fund that was going to put in like $8 million. And he was on his way to the airport to get this money in Switzerland. When he gets a call from that fund that says, as it turns out, two of our LPs, have died in a private jet crash leaving a ski resort in the Alps. And because they owned more than like X percent of the fund, or I don't, I don't know what all the Swiss law was around this, but basically we are locked down and can make no investments. And so we went from like, we're about to have $8 million in the bank to we have three weeks of money. <laughs> so the whole thing basically shut down overnight. And you know, deprived the opportunity to look for a job while you have a job. I decided I would, um, and I was exhausted from this thing. That that CEO was an interesting guy to work for. And so I was like, ah, you know, I enjoy boats. And there's actually like a whole triggering thing that like way back earlier than that, when I was back at PayPal that we can get into if you want, that like yeah. tr triggered a giant story arc that led to this. But um, I said to my dad, you know, I'm just, well, I figure out what I'm going to do next. I, I think I might build a boat, you know, or at least get started on it. And my dad, who is not the fabricator that I am, looks at me and says, well, that sounds like fun. I'll help. I'm like, when do you get to build a boat with your dad? Right. So I'm just like, eh, job search on hold. And I took a year and a half off and built a boat full time with my dad. Okay. Well, um, wait, 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 wait. So let's go back to that precipitating event. Okay. What, what was that? The precipitating event, it, it's a bit circuitous, but, but here we go. Um, so in probably 2005, a childhood friend of mine who I'm still close with said, hey, I'm going on this trip down to Santa Barbara with some guys to go out and dive for lobsters. So unbeknownst to many people, California has lobsters. They are not the main lobster. They do not have claws. You cannot get them in the United States because the vast majority of them are sold in China. So basically the only way you're going to eat a California lobster is if you catch it yourself. <laughs> Or if you happen to be at a restaurant, like at a harbor in Santa Barbara or, you know, right. LA. Okay. So I go on this trip and I have the time of my life and become addicted to diving for lobsters. And How then, far down are they, Ben? Is this like skin diving? You, you, we scuba dive for them, but you can free dive for them. They could be anywhere from... Uh, well, I mean, they'll, they'll go deeper than you can dive, but um, I catch them anywhere from 110 to four feet of water. Um, <laughs> okay. I mean, I spent a lot of time diving with my tank up out of the water, like diving, you know, like getting rolled around by the surf. There are times when you look at it and you're like, yeah, I'm going to wear the helmet for that one because I'm going to get rolled around in the rocks. It's an, it's an insane activity. Like we do... <laughs> 
I don't know how much you know about diving, but I have like a 20 foot long hose on my regulator so that I can take my tank off and shimmy into little holes in the rocks to grab lobsters and then come back out. Like we go deep into caves alone because uh, you can't keep an eye on a buddy while you're looking for lobsters. We do things that no dive agency would uh, suggest is a good idea, but we catch a lot of bucks. I mean, I get lobsters that are over 10 pounds on a regular basis. So okay. it's fun. Okay. Anyway, so I fell in love with this activity. And that led me, after a few years of it, to decide that I wanted to be able to do it on my own because I, I don't generally like charter fishing and charter anything because I feel like basically it's the captain of the boat that caught the fish and I was just the instrument for doing it. And so I bought a boat. <clears throat> I bought a 42-foot fishing boat that was big enough that, you know, I, I live up in the San Francisco Bay Area. You know, Santa Barbara's a long way down and it's a big ocean out here. We, our, our ocean's a little different from the Atlantic. There aren't a lot of places to pull in. So you need a boat that you can actually weather a fair bit of storm in. So I bought a pretty big boat and it was something I could afford. So it was a little old and derelict. And I spent a lot of time fixing it up and getting it right. And that sort of led me to really enjoy working on boats in addition to the diving, right? So this is this sort of path that I was on. Ended up getting a Coast Guard captain's license. I can I can take people out for money if I want to, although I'm not sure I would pass their drug test right now. Um, <laughs> you can decide whether or not you want to put that yeah, in there. We'll but, decide, uh, it's yeah. legal in California. I can. Uh, <laughs> I've got six where I've got six plants out there in their juvenile stage. You also like oh, gardening. Yeah. Good, good. Yeah, it's a, it's a, we ju I'm just a gardener. Um, <laughs> so I really started enjoying boating. Right. Above and beyond. And I've always been a fisherman, but like a, you know, fly fisherman in freshwater. And I started fishing for tuna out here and, you know, salmon and rockfish and all these things. And I was really having a good time with that. And so that got me, you know, sort of down this boating path. And one of the reasons I wanted to build a small boat is that this was around the time that all of my friends started having kids and crewing a 42 foot boat. You're not going to take this. I mean, I did, but it's a pain in the ass to take it out by yourself. Right. right. Like, and it burns a lot of fuel and you want to divide that up amongst more guys and all these things. So it's like, you know, I need a boat that I can single hand because that's what I'm going to be doing most of the time. So I started looking at boat designs and found one that um, I liked. Uh, I'm the only person I think that has ever actually built this boat because the, the guy that designed it died reasonably shortly after I finished it. But it was a, it's, a, it's a beautiful design. So I did that. And so as part of that, so, so to take you through this story arc, right, like... I learned a lot about how to make stuff as part of this process, and including a lot of digital manufacturing things like CNC routing, CNC machining, in investment casting, and because I needed to make parts to, to make this boat. Yeah. And this is something that, you know, if you have both technical aptitude and mechanical aptitude comes very naturally. And it, it just like, I got good at this stuff. So I had no idea that like how or where I might use that professionally. But, you know, I, I added that a lot of this stuff to my toolkit, or at least my intellectual toolkit. And so coming out of the boat building process, as anybody who's taken a, a break before knows, you have to like demonstrate your relevance to the professional world again. I had a friend that was running McKinsey Digital Lab, which basically is a software development shop that's attached to McKinsey that was doing work on behalf of their clients. Okay. And so I joined that because I could, right? It was there. It was an interesting role. My job was basically to help build some of the infrastructure to support that practice. So technically I was a consultant, but the firm was my client. And I was on like a year long project to like figure out how we bring in third party vendors to support this stuff. And it was a fun job. 
But after that year, and that we sort of got that to where it needed to be, I was either going to need to transition over to being an actual consultant that had to like get on airplanes and find business and do all of these things or leave the firm. Right. And I was, uh, my plan was to, to do the former, right. And try and figure that out. Um, it wasn't entirely clear how to do that because most of the partners saw me as like an internal ops guy, not as a consultant. And so like, I was going to have to go through this whole rebranding. And about that time, a good friend of mine who is a recruiter and was an in-house recruiter at PayPal called me up and he's like, Hey, you built a boat. Do you know anything about CMC machining? And I said, you mean CNC machining? He said, yeah, that. (laughs) And I said, yes, I have three CNC machines in my garage. And he said, ah, you got to talk to these guys. And so he introduced me to the founders of a company that was then maybe like 15 or 20 people that were trying to automate G-code generation for prototype machining. And that's a lot, that's a mouthful, but basically if you want to make a part for a prototype that might be made by a variety of other processes in production, it is frequently machined, which is unlike additive or 3D printing, you take a block of material and you remove, you cut away the pieces you don't want, leaving you with the part. Like, you know, sort of, what was, was it Da Vinci's thing? Like, I envision the the sculpture and I remove everything that isn't part of it, right? Okay. Or I don't remember exactly what that quote was, but there's some adage about that. And, and this is a lot harder to automate than 3D printing for reasons that I will spare you. And so we set about to do that. And uh, I spent three years leveraging like the MBA and, you know, sort of all this manufacturing expertise that I had accumulated ultimately for not the way that I would describe that project is that it is a DARPA moonshot class undertaking that we were mm. trying to do on a shoestring budget. And we just, ne- we, we, we couldn't get there. Like it is an achievable goal in my opinion, but not one that, that anybody's going to get to without a ton of money and commitment. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. It died, but I had a ball doing it. Yeah, it sounds like it. And as you say, like pulls together so many pieces of the things that you'd learned as a consequence of all all these other experiences that you had said yes to along the way. So I think that's great. And then you've then parlayed that and other relationships and things into more product roles and kind of bigger things. But I am kind of struck by this thread that runs through of you still are working to live. And it just so happens that every once in a while, the working part is part and parcel of living and kind of gets to meld them. But it's all these other things that you are just soaked into yeah. in your workshop. And yeah. Um, yeah, I marvel at the number of colleagues that I've had over the years, who accumulate vacation days to the cap and then are like they lose them or they're forced to take them and i'm like i have never had this problem right (laughs) like my problem is having enough vacation days to do all the stuff that i want to go do i don't know how you 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 have that problem so yeah no i um there are whole other passions and pursuits that i continue to do i still build a lot of sets for theatrical productions. I um... It's amazing. I mean, I, I get it because I think you can, in, as you said, my listeners can't see this, but all of the things behind you look like you could do anything. There could be things bubbling up or being fabricated or anything. And I love that that 
two is still in that, like, I don't need the math. I just want to go build stuff, right? So you said you did yeah. kind of know who you were all along. And yeah. so much of it is well, What's funny is I'm a lot better at math more. than most people that build things, which makes it easy to, like, be very helpful in contexts right. where um, people are trying to figure out how to get stuff built. Right. So I guess the classic question that I ask here, I feel like I already know the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So you go back and you find your 20-year-old Ben and you give him a preview and say, hey, look, this is all the things you'll be doing. And by the time you're 25 plus years out, this is what life will have looked like. What would he say to you? Hmm. It's not the question I thought you were going to ask. I thought it was like the, what advice would you give? What would he say to me? Um, I think, I think he'd be happy. This is a different lens on it. I was at an event last weekend that for me always stimulates a great deal of introspection. So as I was driving home, you know, I was thinking about the fact that I, I have tried sometimes thoughtfully sometimes just it just happens to live in a way that if i were told i had a week to live that i wouldn't feel like i had mortgaged my present for a future that might not happen and and so you know i check in with myself every once in a while to say you know do i feel like i'm still on that that if I were presented with, with that circumstance, right? Like you've got three weeks to live that I would have regrets. And, you know, I mean, I have, I would have minor ones, you know, I really wish I hadn't, you know, said that thing to that girl way back when or whatever, but like, you know, from a, from a balance of life perspective, I feel like I've explored the things that I've wanted to explore. And I hope to have the opportunity to keep doing that. I have great friends who I see regularly. It's a small group, but it's a strong group. I have a wife and dog that I love. I have a family that I'm still close with. Ironically, I'm the last one that's still in California. Everybody else moved to Idaho. You know, that to me is, I guess the question that I hope I would have asked as a 20-year-old would have been, do you feel like you've lived well? And the answer would be yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's totally right, Ben. And I wasn't actually expecting that question to land as a value judgment. And when I said I thought I knew your answer, I thought it was going to be the, yes, I get to keep doing the stuff I love to do. And great, yeah. the, the job is a byproduct, but like I, I get to keep exploring and doing these things. And to know that you were diving for California lobsters like that seems really cool and unanticipated and so that's the thing is like I don't know that I don't know that at 20 I would have predicted that all of the things that I'm doing now would have been on the list yeah right so if you told me I was building a boat my miner might not have said well that seems like a waste of time I probably would have thought that it was a good time So, so I don't know that that I would have predicted the passions but I I am glad that I've had the really the privilege and the luxury of being able to explore those passions, right? Like, yeah. you know, again, I, I, I got to work for a living, but like, I'm, you know, I have the ability to do stuff and it's nice. Yeah. And you might not have been able to anticipate the individual passions, but you would have known, like, I'm going to keep being passionate about stuff. And if yeah. that gets squashed by, like, life and the man, like, that's not cool. And to see that it hasn't, I can only imagine is like, oh, all 
All right. That sounds good. (laughs) So I am so glad, Ben, that you shared this with us. And we just can't wait to see where the next passions bubble up from and how you take them, I'm sure, with both hands and feet. And uh, I hope you keep us posted. I, I hope to as well. It's been far too long, Leslie. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Ben. Yeah. That was Ben Mitchell, who's had a bunch of experiences in the online world, including product management, service delivery, and privacy in such settings as PayPal, Cisco, and Facebook. He's also gotten into lobster diving, has built a boat with his dad, and continues to build large-scale mechanical contraptions for theatrical shows, all in his non-working hours. We often talk about how you can engage with our show in ways other than listening, and this is a banner example. Check out the show notes in your podcast app or go to rosetakenshow.com and search the episodes tab for Ben Mitchell to find all sorts of extra goodies, including a link to Ben's chronicles of his boat building adventures with his dad and an awesome picture of Ben with an absolutely gigantic lobster. Whatever you have in your mind's eye, I guarantee it will be bigger than that. So thanks for listening and continuing to tune in for more surprises like that on future episodes with my guests and me, Leslie Jennings Rowley on Roads Taken.